Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 19 of the Clarinet Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Dedaria Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, Dedaria is redefining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with technology built from the ground up. By using the world's most innovative techniques to deliver consistently what was once made variable by hand, Dedaria ensures excellence right out of the box as standard, not a surprise. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Dedaria Woodwinds, visit dedario.com woodwinds. Today, our guest on the podcast is Ed Joffe, who is returning for the final part in a three-part series. If you haven't checked out part one and two, I would highly recommend doing so. Ed is an incredibly knowledgeable man, and we covered a ton of fantastic subjects, including his new CD called Contrast, tips for clarinet players interested in doubling, the fascinating history of woodwind doubling in the orchestra and other ensembles, and his amazing book called Woodwind Doubling for Saxophone, Clarinet, and Flute. In this episode, we focus mainly on Ed's nearly 40 years of experience as a versatile Broadway musician. The giveaway for this series of episodes is a signed copy of Ed's new CD called Contrast. If you'd like to be eligible to win items mentioned on the podcast, be sure to head to clarinet.com and subscribe to the e-newsletter. In addition to getting a chance to win this and other exciting giveaways, you'll receive content updates, exclusive product coupons, special offers, and more. If you'd like to purchase a copy of Ed's new CD or book, there are links on the show notes that go directly to Ed's website. Alternatively, you can head right to joffeywoodwinds.com. Joffe is spelled J-O-F-F-E. Before we get started, I'd like to feature one more selection from Ed's upcoming album. This one exemplifies Ed's doubling abilities on flute and clarinet perfectly because he's actually layering the recording in such a way that he played both instruments. I personally can't stop listening to this track. It's just gorgeous. The arrangement is, is incredible, and I hope that you enjoy it. Here's Ed Joffe performing Variations on an Autumn Theme. So welcome to the clarinet.com podcast for the third time here, Ed. I'm so glad to have you back on the show today. And today's episode, we are going to focus on Broadway and being a Broadway musician. Yes. Uh, well, that's been a major part of my career as far as uh, uh, sustained work and work that, you know, allowed me to survive here in New York for my, well, in my entire life. Have you, you said you've been playing more than 40 years in, in uh, this type of act throughout the uh... year? Somewhere in the late 70s, I began subbing on Broadway. So it's probably not quite 40, maybe 37, 38 years. But it, it's enough time. <laughs> Pretty yeah. close. How has the industry changed and the, the, the way that the public receives it? And, and maybe the history, maybe a little bit of the Broadway, mm -hmm. even before you got there. You're, you're the history well, guy. Well, I don't know about that. But <laughs> um, when I was going to school as an undergrad and 
I uh, remember doing a production of uh, Company, a Stephen Sondheim musical, uh, in school when I was a senior, uh, an undergraduate senior. And it was a lot of fun. We did, a, I believe, a full week of productions, and it was a week or two of rehearsals. Uh, and it's a lovely musical, and I was playing the lead book, which had, you know, I think several saxophones, clarinet, flute, piccolo. And there was even some blowing at the end of the show where, I don't know if that was in Broadway, but certainly in the um, in the books that we had, you know, we, we, they'd open it up for uh, for jazz at the end of the show on the exit music. So I thought, wow, this is this is pretty fun. And I, did, I never considered that... Um, type of career going to school as a music major I really didn't have a good focus on what the music industry was to be honest with you um, they never talked about the music business in school at the time at least in the school that I went to and um, you know making a living as a full-time musician I mean uh, it was sort of a nebulous thing I, I, I was doing club dates or casuals where you play for dinner dancers uh, or uh, maybe little affairs, weddings, bar mitzvahs, things like that. But um, didn't really have a clue. I knew about orchestral uh, gigs and the orchestral world, but that other area called commercial music was very vague to me. So Broadway suddenly became a possibility after doing the show in uh, college because they said, well, you know, if you do a Broadway show, you can do a lot of other jobs. You can take off up to 50% of the time. That means you could hold the job at the show and take off whenever you got called for other work. And I thought, wow, this that's that's pretty good. And you can play all your instruments and even improvise. Little did I know that that very uh, positive experience I had in college was probably going to be the most positive experience I ever had with a show <laughs> in the years to follow. Uh, because you know, the conductor was terrific. He was a wonderful composer. He's still around, named Bruce Saylor. He's a serious classical composer and fine educator. He made the show fun. The cast was terrific. The whole the whole dynamic was great. When I started doing Broadway or looking to do Broadway for a living more, then you start to get a real sense of what it is to be in the music business. Um, when I started in the late 1970s, uh, Broadway was a gig for either very young players looking to the to enter the industry like I was, or players who were sort of on the back end of their careers. Uh, and that was simply because there was so much work, uh, certainly in New York. Uh, the recording industry was still thriving. Freelance work was terrific. Uh, One-nighters all over. Every hotel had a band or several bands. Uh, so really, uh, there was so much work that uh, if you were a top player, doing a Broadway show was a demerit in the late 70s. Uh, quite frankly, it was just above doing club dates. I mean, if you wow. didn't do uh, weddings or bar mitzvahs, then maybe uh, Broadway was what you did. But uh, if you were a studio musician or an orchestral musician or one of the top freelance players, you, you just didn't do Broadway uh, then because... It it didn't pay as well, and who wanted to be stuck playing the same music every night? Quite frankly, that and that was the industry that I entered. But I have to say, in the well, almost forty years now since, things have changed dramatically, 
and uh, that's what I think the listening public, especially young players, need to be aware of, uh, is how dramatic the change is and what it means uh, to do Broadway, how to get a gig on Broadway, and how to maybe survive uh, on Broadway. So how would one get a gig on Broadway? Because I know, and a lot of people know through their training at university, that you know to get an orchestral job, you just go and audition. And I don't mean you just go and audition. <laughs> you do go and audition, and then you just hope to get something someday. Um, but how does it work with Broadway? Do you show up somewhere similar and give it a try? Or how do you get into that sort of yeah, circle? Yeah, well, that, that, therein lies the, uh, the big question. Uh, in New York, uh, where, you know, the Broadway theater is most prevalent uh, of any city in the country. Uh, it is illegal to audition musicians for a production. Uh, it is it illegal? Is illegal. It's against the bylaws of Local 802. That's totally backwards from the orchestral exactly. world, no? So then how does one get into Broadway? And it's, it's, uh, it's simple and yet complicated. You need to establish... Uh, your name among your colleagues. In other words, you have to have a network of people who will begin to use you as subs. Now, that sounds rather straightforward, but subbing is no longer that easy on Broadway. I mean, I'm not trying to make it hard. I'm just trying to be realistic and present the uh, true facts. Years ago, by years ago, I mean, let's say five years ago, uh, musicians could still take off uh, legally and hold their job on Broadway up to 50% of the time. Uh, and that was okay uh, as long as there was enough work. But there's been a change in our healthcare system in, in the United States and certainly for musicians. And in order to qualify for the uh, healthcare plans, you need to average a little over six shows a week. In other words, every Broadway show musical generally does eight shows a week. So now you sort of need to be there about 75% of the time, assuming you don't have any other work that will pay into the health care fund, uh, in order to qualify for the, you know, the better health care plans and hospitalization fund. Uh, that means subbing is now not as uh, available to people who don't have a show as it once was. So that restricts the amount of people who might be subbing. Now, you have to sort of know some of the players who are doing the shows on your instruments and hope that they are impressed enough with you as a player to consider you for, you know, uh, subbing work. Now the question is, how do you meet those players? Well, I always tell younger players um, that the best way to do that is to be direct and honest with people who play your instrument. Find out who's playing those shows uh, maybe go to some shows, find, look at the playbill, come down to the pit, try to meet the players, and explain that you're new in town, uh, that you like to do this work, that you would like to play for them. Take a lesson from them, or several, but be upfront. Uh, don't just take a lesson and figure you're going to wow them. Uh, because let's face it, we're in New York, and there are a lot of great players here, and a lot of wonderful players come to New York just to work here. But be direct with the player. Take some lessons from a number of people on your instrument or instruments and ask them to assess your playing. Find out what they think of your playing. And hopefully, if, you know, if they think well enough of you, they would consider you or 
you know, might reference you uh, to a contractor. The other thing, of course, to do is to find out who the major contractors are who do this type of work and write them a letter and with a resume. Uh, most do not appreciate uh, you calling them and, you know, bugging them at home. But, you know, write to them and tell them, you know, you're here in New York, show them what work you've done. To that extent, uh, the best way... I believe, in addition to what I've just mentioned, is to go out and try to do uh, road shows, do shows on the road, international tours, any type of musical theater work, if that's what you want to do and, and the type of work you want to get into, so that you build a resume of experience in doing shows, but you also build a network of people uh, who are interested in doing that work as well. Um, and a contractor who I've worked for for many years named John Miller in New York um, often says when he uh, speaks to audiences uh, about this that uh, every single person you meet in the industry is part of your ultimate networking community and that conductors who are doing road shows now in 10 years will be the conductors doing the shows on Broadway and I think that has proven to be true in a great many cases so that if you do road shows uh, and meet other musicians and conductors, uh, perhaps, you know, if you're a good player and you impress them and you uh, act like a good colleague and take the word seriously, uh, that ultimately down the line, that will prove beneficial in getting employed. Um, so for me, that raises two questions. Yeah. I mean, the first one is um, in the, the orchestra world, I think that the idea behind auditions is that so this exact situation does not happen where you have to know someone to get a job. What is it about the Broadway uh, circuit that allows it to be backwards like this or that allows the union to see that as even desirable? The, I find like, surprising. Of course, there's, just no, there's no formal auditions. I mean, think about it. Shows, uh, unlike orchestras, which are, you know, there for hopefully lifetimes, uh, shows uh, start and end sometimes within months, sometimes within a few years. But there's a constant turnover. Every show is different. Every show's music requirements is different. The number of musicians is different. Uh, so, you know, if one were to have auditions for every single book on every single Broadway show coming in, uh, it would be prohibitive, first of all, financially, for the producers who are putting on the show. Uh, mm. And to be honest with you... The musicians generally are always the last things considered. I mean, the, you know, you're getting a show up and running. You're getting the book together. The actors, you certainly have to get first and foremost the producers, the backers, the promo for the show. You're getting the uh, creative uh, team together with the choreographer, director, uh, conductor. And then, you know, as you get towards the end of that process, then you sit down, you get a musical contractor, and they sit down and work out uh, the personnel for the show. Um, it would be prohibitive. Uh, it's not impossible, but it would be costly. And the producers, trust me, do not want to spend any more money on musicians than they are already spending. And we're just hoping to hang on to what we have right now quite frankly we're in negotiations on a new broadway contract if if we well, ever offered up the fact that we want to have auditions each show and you know it would be at the producer's expense forget it and if it were on the union's expense forget it we'd bankrupt our union well one of the criticisms of the orchestral audition process too is that 
you know, there's one job and you have people from all over the world flying in for that one job. And you know how many people's time was wasted uh, over auditioning for, you know, a job that might not even pay that much. Um, and in this situation, too, I mean, if you're having two or three auditions a year, um, I can imagine that the number of people coming and not getting work, I mean, they're just they're just there spending time on something that's not going to go anywhere for them. Well, it's you know? true. Uh, here's an example of what it might appear like. Uh, in New York, Radio City Music Hall has two shows now that they audition musicians for as per their specific contract. And that's been going on mm -hmm. for a number of years. I'm maybe the last six or seven years, perhaps. Uh, so they hold auditions for a number of chairs. I think maybe 11 or 12 chairs for the Christmas show and I think for all the chairs for their uh, spring-summer show now. Uh, it's advertised in the union paper. There are auditions. You apply for it. Some people are accepted to audition, some not. Uh, if you're a doubler, you're, you may be playing five, six, seven horns coming into audition for any one or two chairs. And uh, it's a several days of auditions and they take their, you know, whoever they decide. Uh, but it's an incredibly taxing uh, situation. Imagine playing five or six horns auditioning. And I think, the, I think they have one minute on each instrument to play something an excerpt that will impress the uh, people behind the curtain. Uh, and you go from one instrument to the other, right after, no real break, one minute on one instrument, one minute on the next, one minute on the next, and so on. And and that's your audition. Uh, I mean, that's as excruciating as it can be. You don't even get a chance to get into a feel on an instrument before you have to go to the next one. And you have to and lay yeah. out something that's generally, they're looking for technically impressive players who have decent sounds and uh, you don't get a chance to play in a section or with anyone there's no uh, tryout period it's based on that one little moment so to be honest with you Sean there is no ideal um, way of, of, of establishing personnel I think for an orchestra or for a commercial situation um, you know nothing is going to be perfect um, but Broadway now being the uh, prime uh, benefactor of our union as far as the work dues that go in from Broadway to Local 802, it's become a very important gig. And because it pays a livable wage with some benefits, and it's one of the few jobs in New York, uh, other than the Lincoln Center orchestras, that pay a livable wage with benefits, it's become a desirable gig that uh, people... 15, 20 years ago, wouldn't have even thought of auditioning. Uh, here, here, here's a little tidbit. The very first show I did was the original run of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It was a, <laughs> it was a Broadway show, sort of, but, uh, you know, early 80s, maybe 81 uh, or mm -hmm. 80. Anyway, any event, that was the first show that I had from the beginning as my own show. One of the uh, trumpet players on the show was a terrific trumpet player who's now retired named Danny Kahn. And Danny was a very funny fellow, but he was also uh, working in the studios quite a bit uh, at that time. And, and he, I remember him telling me, he said, Eddie, don't tell anyone that I'm doing this show if John Faddis or Lou Soloff or Alan Rubin, who were you know, among the greatest trumpet players in the world, the top studio guys uh, at the time, if he said, if they hear that I'm doing a show, forget it. I'll be blackballed. They'll never talk to me again. Uh, it, wow. it literally was that low on the rung. Today, you'll find the very greatest players um, 
in New York and maybe in the country, not only playing a show but looking to play a show because it's what's left as far as paying a full-time livable wage with benefits. So it's interesting how over several generations uh, this type of work has changed in priority and, des and in desirability. Well, it's funny because a lot of things change, and this is a really sort of reaching <laughs> comparison, but it's like back in the day where they used to serve lobster in the prisons, and then lobster kind of over the decades became a delicacy to the point where it's more expensive than the best steaks and things, you know, and and uh, years ago, the, 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 the aristocratic type people never even would have touched it, and now they, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's so musical tastes and musical themes change along with food and everything else in society. Yeah, and... Uh... But one thing doesn't change on Broadway. It's eight shows a week. And when you talk about prison, if you're doing a long-running show, <laughs> it can feel like that. Uh, it's, it's, it can take its toll musically and emotionally. Uh, and so how do you keep your mind active? Like if you're playing eight shows a week, I mean, I, I did, I've only ever done short runs of little things with high schools, for uh, example, in uh, town of this kind of thing. And I find by the end of the fifth show, I can play it while I'm uh -huh. sleeping. And I'm glad it's the last one. Yes, uh, and it varies from show to show and uh, situation to situation. Uh, the best circumstances is that one, you're you're playing with uh, colleagues who are good players, decent people, and in an, a physical environment that's not toxic, <laughs> which so many of these theaters are. It's, uh, I mean, the last show that I did uh, full time, uh, we were in a theater, a small theater, and and we were enclosed below. Uh, below the stage level, not visible to the audience, and it felt like we were in a submarine for two and a half hours every day. Uh, literally, and the air was bad. I was playing uh, in that particular gig. It was, if I remember, flute, piccolo, clarinet, uh, maybe some recorders. I, it, but I remember a lot of piccolo, and I was playing right into a wall. I mean, I was up against the wall with high piccolo passages, and we had to wear head, you know, uh, headsets. We were in cans uh, to hear one another because we couldn't hear one another acoustically. Um, so, I mean, you know, sometimes the physical situation can be worse than the musical situation. You know, even though you're playing the same music, if the physical situation is not uh, conducive to playing music, it can really take its toll on you. But getting back to your question in a more specific musical response... Uh, you have to look for things to engage your mind. Um, one of the things that I try to do is is try to transcribe in my mind uh, what other people are playing, or try to figure out the harmonies that are going on as I as I know my part when I become comfortable with my part, so that I'm not so worried. You know, am I going to get the note out? Is it going to be in tune? You know, how am I going to make the transition from one instrument to another? When I get past that point, which varying on the show can take one or two weeks, um, and sometimes more if they keep making changes, but um, figuring out the musical surroundings uh, or listening to zeroing in on some other players in the pit, uh, you know, that can help. I also play a game uh, that I know a lot of my colleagues do, uh, an equipment game. Okay, what type of equipment is going to work best in this situation? So you start bringing in different mouthpieces, ligatures, reed setups, uh, 
you know, just figuring out maybe this can sound better, or if nothing else, just occupying your mind with a different setup that day to give you something else to focus on. So you do have to uh, play uh, games a little bit with yourself to keep yourself engaged after you've done a show 30, 40, 50, 500. Imagine the people doing Phantom of the Opera now, 20, I don't know, 27 years, 28 years. I mean, it's ridiculous. How do you... Is it some of the same people? Believe it or not, yes. Oh, my God. Yeah I, yeah, I mean, there's a point where a show is a blessing because at least you have some financial stability when you know you have a hit show. And then there's the other side of the coin where it's it's a nightmare because it is the same situation, the same physical surroundings, the same people, the same music. Um, it, it's a difficult thing to juggle, and everyone does it slightly differently. And it depends on your instruments as well. I mean, I think wood, woodwind doublers uh, do it a little differently than percussionists or than brass players and certainly than string players. Um, uh, the, the, the best way to do a Broadway show is to make sure you have plenty of other work to engage you outside of that particular gig. That really is the ideal thing so that you can still maintain the gig by doing your over 50%, but... Um, have enough outside work so that your mind and music uh, will, your musical mind will be engaged, and also that you'll still have contributions to your healthcare plan so that you know all those things will be intact. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting you raise this concern about the 50 to 75% because any, you know, any other kind of person would say, well, I mean, who cares that someone has to be at work? Uh, the time that they're supposed to be or whatever. But I think that, that, that mentally this is going to take a toll on people because they're unable to pursue other things that are, are stimulating to them and that also prevents the newer people from coming in. This is true. This is the result of uh, musicians now doing shows needing to work at the show more in order to maintain their benefits. Um, the, the thing you don't want to do is become a factory worker where you're playing the notes, you're not listening, your mind is somewhere else, sometimes that's almost impossible to avoid uh, at times. Uh, and I must admit that I have at times found myself lapsing into that. And one of the things besides what I've mentioned that helps me get through it is uh, I simply take off sometimes just to take off. I call it a mental health mm. day. But uh, basically, I <laughs> do anything else. Maybe I'll go play golf. Or I'll go out, believe it or not, hear a concert. Or if there's something in town that's, you know, at the Met Opera or Carnegie or someone's in town at one of the jazz clubs. I mean, just to take off and do that can be so refreshing. Um, I find a lot of players who get trapped in doing Broadway for a large part of the career, and I hate to say this, but I, I think it's true, they become gigmeisters. They look at the gig and the Broadway show and the next Broadway show and the next Broadway show and their life revolves totally around that. And usually it shows in their playing. Uh, I think if you look at the, at the show as your life, uh, you lose something musically. Uh, they forget what excited them in music the first time. I, I think it's partly true in an orchestral situation. If you're in an orchestra for 15, 20, 30, 40 years, you know, what excites you anymore? And, and you have to look for those uh, avenues uh, to excite you. So you may want to do more chamber music playing uh, or do summer festivals. 
you know, or or you know, maybe get involved in teaching a little bit on the side at a conservatory, something else to engage your musical mind so that the monotony of being in the same physical location with the same people uh, does not ruin your musical sensitivity. So there must be things, um, like I feel like we're kind of going down a dark path and I don't want to discourage <laughs> anybody okay, here. <laughs> <laughs> but but like there must be some things that also are rather redeeming about it that you enjoy about having the chance to approach that music as much and as often as that. Well, um, or would you say it's more a means to an end to pursue other goals? That's well, a little bit of both. Uh, and everybody, yeah. I think, will have a slightly different take on it. Uh, my take on it is, sure, in, in a, an economy like we have now, in a music industry that's downsizing, sure, it's, it's a survival, it's a steady paycheck that's there every week. Uh, but the thing that you can learn from doing a Broadway show is really related to something I mentioned a few minutes ago. It's about equipment. What equipment actually works uh, in certain situations? Uh, you know, we can practice at home all we want, but until we're actually in the midst of, of playing, uh, and especially as a doubler where you're doing, you know, three or four different sets of instruments and multiples of those sometimes, playing all different styles of music, what setups work? What instruments work? Uh, what allows you to move from one instrument to the other. And those are the things that I think I've learned most from doing a Broadway show uh, throughout the last, I don't know, 36, 37, 38 years. Um, I have a good sense of what setups for me work for certain styles of music and what don't. And you know what? The good thing is you never 100% correct on that. For instance, uh, I mean, this is just because it's on my mind. I'm going into sub for a colleague of mine t tonight on uh, Fiddler on the Roof, which is a, a revival on uh, Broadway. Uh, and it's a pretty good production from what I can discern. Uh, but I'm playing the solo clarinet book, the Klezmer clarinet book, as it were. And uh, there's a lot of uh, solos uh, toward the end of the first act, beginning of the second act. I mean, there are three major cadenzas, believe it or not, where the conductor basically stops conducting and you're playing. And there are about three mm -hmm. or four other huge solos on top of that, uh, all of which are klezmer type of playing. Now, prior to that and after that, you're in the classical orchestral woodwind section, and you're playing completely different volumes and styles. And so you have to have a setup that can allow you to play uh, with very good pitch and obviously uh, the sound that you're hoping to get and, and articulate well enough to blend with oboe, bassoon, another clarinetist, then flute. Um, and then you have to step out and play, uh, you know, completely different style, a completely different volume and flexibility to bend notes and, uh, and, and uh, you know, flutter and do all sorts of, uh, you know, articulations that aren't classical in nature. Uh, and so I had started out playing a setup that I thought would accommodate that. The conductor said, you know, I'd like it to be a little louder. And so I ended up moving more towards a jazz setup that had a not too big a, a tip opening, but allowed me still to play louder than I would on my normal um, uh, chamber music or orchestral setups. Uh, so, you know, you're constantly learning about what works and what doesn't. Uh, I, I, there's also E-flat clarinet on the book, and I went through a lot of changes on my E-flat clarinet to play 
these these passages, even though, quite frankly, I don't think it matters at all, and the conductor doesn't give a damn about it. Um, but <laughs> there was stuff, you know, up to high F sharps and all that. And when you get into the pit and you realize you're playing E flat clarinet in the first number, and uh, the doors have been open to the theater just before you start, and it's quite cold, especially in the wintertime here in New York, you know, and you have to play low register E flat clarinet. Well, you know, that. 42 millimeter barrel suddenly becomes a 41 millimeter barrel for the first few numbers until the horn warms up or until the theater warms up. And then you have to switch mm -hmm. uh, because now you've got to play in the top part of the horn and, you know, and maybe you don't want to be quite as sharp as, you know, uh, especially, you know, A, B, and C above the staff. You don't want to be quite sharp there. So, I mean... Well, the versatility thing is so interesting because you're touching on classical, jazz, klezmer, uh, God, what else? I mean, what other styles are you expected right. to just Right, pull well, out? that's the thing. I mean, and that's, if you treat the gig like that and looking to find the best answers, it's sort of like a crossword puzzle, you know? Uh, you're trying to fill in the blanks with the best possible answers and hope that it all works together uh, in a uniform whole. Um and so being a doubler, you know, maybe allows us to get through these types of situations better than, let's say, if you were playing a section violin part in a Broadway show and you're just playing, you know, a lot of whole notes and uh, section work and you're there for 10 years. Man, I don't know how those people survive that. Maybe that's why they tend to leave the shows. But the... So, so let's talk about your setup yeah. a little bit. Like we go over your clear clarinet case for tonight. What's in there to get through that gig with the versatility you need? Man, oh well, this is, uh, it's right in front of me now, so I can point it out. So, uh, I play a Buffet R13 uh, clarinet, uh, and so I have two different setups, believe it or not. Uh, of course, depending on the temperature there, I have a, the setup that will play for the Klezmer, uh, I have a, a very old Selmer blank Uh it's there's not even a facing on it. I mean, it was it's probably about 70, 70 80 years old, and it plays a little high uh, pitch wise. So I can use a sixty six millimeter with it and still play above the band, even if it's a little cold. I can pull out if it's if it's a little sharp, but that's a little freer. And then I have uh, my more uh, you say classical setup where I could use that sixty six millimeter barrel or even a sixty seven millimeter barrel and use a a Brad Bain mouthpiece uh, uh, that I, I've been using Brad Bain's mouthpieces for about oh, maybe a decade now. Uh, and Brad makes his mouthpieces uh, at 442. So I can play a 66 millimeter barrel in a pit orchestra, even if it's a little cold and get away with it. Uh, so depending on the situation and how my reads are feeling at the show, I might start out the show playing like the first 45 minutes with the classical setup and then segue to the jazz setup as I approach the cadenzas uh, at the end of the first act and the beginning of the second act. Uh, so you'll actually switch mouthpiece during I, the... I will. I, I would rather not, but, you know, it, it, you know I, I've got to satisfy myself first. I mean, if I'm not feeling like I'm blending the section or I can articulate in a more classical style on the jazz setup, you know, then I'll opt to do that. Uh, it's. I don't think it's healthy to... to, to constantly switch mouthpieces on gigs to be honest with you but sometimes mm -hmm. the situation may call for it and you know um you know i've just got to make sure that i can feel comfortable playing in the musical context so 
I'll put myself through that, which again is something I don't know how many people would, would want to do that, but yeah, I seem to end up being that's just my nature. It's my personality. What about ligature selection? Do you feel that? <laughs> oh, 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 oh man, did you open up a can Oh no, are we opening up a can of worms? <laughs> a lot of cans of worms. I, I'm, I, this is, I hate to admit that. Well, you do things when you're younger because you think a ligature is going to be the answer. And sometimes it is. Uh, it's not? No, well, no sometimes it is. I, I mean, but yeah, it also yeah. depends on the reeds, the time of the year, um, the mouthpiece you're using, the barrel you're using. If the reed is, uh, you know, a little harder, you might, uh, certain ligatures make them softer. If a reed is a little weaker, some ligatures, the way they, where they put the pressure can make them feel a little heavier. So, I hate to admit it. I think I probably have at least 50 or more clarinet ligatures in my stock. And I probably have the same for alto sax, less for tenor and soprano and baritone. But, I mean, it's, you know, you always want to see if, when there's something new out if it's helpful. And depending on the situation. You start a museum. Yeah, but you know what? Uh, this week I've been playing over at New York, uh, what's well, called the Coke Theater now with this New York City Ballet. Uh, plays, and uh, we were doing West Side Story this week, so I'm playing that alto solo at the beginning, and I un uh, opted to use an older mouthpiece that was more uh, in use when West Side Story was initiated in the 50s, so I'm using an old Brillhart mouthpiece, and I found that using a Silverstein ligature uh, on it uh, with the new Van Doren uh, V21 uh, reads was the best combination to play that. Uh, I did not start out with that combination at all, but during rehearsals, uh, I realized, you know, this is where I had to go in that for that piece of music in that theater in, with that orchestration. So I mean, that's part of the fun of it. You know, you where you're even if you've done a piece of music a lot, like you know, West Side Story, everyone's probably done at least now. Uh, it's such a popular piece. But, you know, you know, dealing with what sounds the best at a particular moment can lead you to different directions. And so uh, maybe it's a diversion, but I think also from a musical standpoint, uh, the correct ligature combination with reed and mouthpiece and in the environment, the physical environment you're playing, can lead you in different directions. So, you know, that's how I sort of treat gigs that are uh, recurring type of gigs or you know, this, or literally a Broadway show where you're playing the same music every night. With the environment, you actually remind me of a question I wanted to ask last time but forgot. Um, reeds are so susceptible to, to change. Uh, and, oh, really? Uh, like, would you believe it? It's snowing here today. <laughs> it's, uh, this is after a week. We were in the high 30s in Celsius. So what is that in Fahrenheit? I don't know. But um, yeah, it was wow. July weather all right. week. And then wake up this morning, it's snowing. Um, <laughs> so, but for you, like managing seven instruments, the reeds, that's seven times the problem. And as the reeds get bigger, the problems get worse. So what do you do? Are you into the synthetic reeds at all? Or are you spending a lot of time on the reeds or what, what's well, your thought on that? I'm not into synthetic reeds. Um, I know a lot of people who are, um, to my ears, uh, the best synthetic reed does not equate at this moment in time still with excellent uh, cane reeds. Now, that being said, finding cane reeds that are 
really satisfying you totally, ooh, it's not an easy chore. And uh, it's not it, it's not something that one uh, can just say, can count on every day, just pulling out a box and taking out some reads. So I do spend a lot of time with my reads. I spend more time now than I used to. Um, uh, I'm also more careful now about uh, how I... Uh, save the reads from day to day, making sure there's always some little humidity control in them. I even put my reads when I get them into a cigar uh, box, uh, you know, humidity controlled uh, wooden cigar box uh, until I open them. Uh, so I'm trying to do as much as I can to preserve their uh, sanity <laughs> Uh, because the you know because quite frankly the price of reeds is absurd today uh, and the cane in spite of what every reed maker says uh, the cane has suffered and I think part of it is due to our uh, climate change and uh, the environment and you know what minerals are in the earth uh, how the cane is grown uh, also cane I think is probably cut a little sooner than it should be and maybe it's not left to dry as much as it should be, uh, you know, all those factors, climate, environment, of course, and then uh, finances. So, you know, we're on the receiving end, and we've got to make the most we can with the reads we have. So I think even more than maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago, you have to know what you're doing with the reads and in uh, shaping them to what you want, uh, you know, how to maneuver them, how to sustain them, how to preserve them. It's really become more essential, at least you know, from my point of view. Um, and what what is your main thought on, on on adjusting the reeds? Because a lot of a lot of clarinet players, um, myself uh, included, have often been timid about adjusting because we don't have to do it as much as like an oboist would, and it, you just never get as good at it as you'd like. So, what knife do you use, and what what techniques well, do you want to share? I think I kind of disagree with that. I mean, yes, oboists. Oh, really? Even if we're using. Uh, commercially made reeds, the amount of time we have to spend if we really want to do it right is substantial. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. and, and I think a lot of the problem is the breaking in process. Um, it's one thing to know where to go on the reed to make a certain adjustment, but the first part, the breaking in, takes a great deal of patience and time. And I'm still trying to improve that uh, in, in my world. I, I mean, I don't think we can give enough time to the breaking in process. I mean, I think several weeks is probably what we need minimally. Uh, I, I tend to be more on the maybe a week break in process. By week, I mean taking the reeds out of the box, unsealing them, letting them just sit in the environment for an hour, doing nothing. Let it just sit and get, a, you know, the reed to get custom to the environment that we're now putting it in. I meant then I put them back in the box or I put them back in a uh, humidity controlled packet. Next day I might wet them a little bit. Just, I mean, a little bit, like 15, 20 seconds in some, uh, you know, mildly, uh, mildly warm water. Take them out, rub the water off, and maybe rub the water into the cane a little bit, uh, trying to seal it. Let them dry, put them away. Next day, the same thing. Maybe by the third or fourth day, I'll play just a few notes on each one just to get a sense. Still sealing them, putting them away. And that, as long as you can sustain that for 
maybe even a week before playing the reeds real hard, just letting the reeds get accustomed, let them expand, contract, expand, contract, getting them to basically be more consistent and settled, I think then you can make a, great, a better assessment of the reeds before you start cutting. Uh, that being said, I'm just like everyone else. There are times when nothing is playing. I'll open up a box read, put the first one that plays well enough on and you know, have to do the gig that way. But if I'm really on my game, um, that's what I do for every set of reeds, whether it be alto sax, tenor, soprano sax, clarinet, E-flat clarinet. I mean, every one of them deserves you know, has to be treated with that same respect, and that's a lot of time. Uh, now mm -hmm. that, and that's also one of the reasons why I never wanted to play a double read. I thought, man, forget it. I'll never play music again. If, if I'm doing this with the single reads, now I've got to, you know, learn how to work and manufacture my own reads. Forget it. it it's just, that, but again, that's my personality. Some people are perfectly content, take the read out of the box, play it, put it away. Um, and I know some orchestral players who do it. I, I studied with a gentleman who was the assistant uh, principal clarinet of the New York Philharmonic for many decades. His name was Peter Seminauer. He was a, just a wonderful man and a great player. B-flat, E-flat clarinet, just spectacular. And Peter, every year, would have about 400 boxes of Van Doren reeds be, split between you know B-flat reeds and E-flat reeds in his studio. And he would take out Whatever read from a box, play, play it. And those that didn't, he threw them away. He didn't want to be bothered with working on them and spending the time. And uh, that's how he survived. That was his approach. And, you know, I know a number of people who do that. Uh, 400 boxes? Unbelievable. He lived in Montclair, New Jersey. And I remember going in the studio. The entire studio was surrounded by, well, in those days, Van Doren boxes, you know, were the purple-yellow kind. And I just couldn't believe it, you know. And he and he said, "Yeah, that's one year's stock," and you know, I I just didn't understand it. And then he explained, but that's how he dealt with it. And you know what? If you have that kind of money and or that kind of relationship with the company, maybe that's the way to do it, uh, so you don't go too nuts with the reads. But you do have to know how to prepare the reads before you start uh, working on them, and. Yeah, and then working on them is another thing. And I, I was fortunate to study a great deal with Joe Allard, who was quite adept at adjusting reeds. And uh, I also worked with a fellow who was not that well known. He was mostly a big band player, but very gifted um, with reeds. His name is John Signorelli. And he shared a lot of information with me on stuff. So, you know, and every teacher that I had, I gained a little bit from. So, you know, you're always an accumulation of those who you work with. And I've tried mm -hmm. to incorporate as much of their knowledge. And, of course, you know, there were many fine books on reed making, uh, particularly like the Cal Opperman book and also Ben Armato's book, uh, Perfect to Read. Uh, so, I mean, whatever information you can get, you try and see what works for you. And that which works, you keep. If it doesn't, you, you just don't use it. Um, so I, I make use of uh, – I, I generally like uh, double beveled um, – a knife. Uh, I, I like particular one I have. It has a rosewood handle. I get it from Forest Music. Um, and I also like to work with Reed Rush a lot. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, generally when I need to move more cane off the reed, 
uh, I'll use the knife first and then follow it with the rush. Um, that generally, you know, is my go-to approach. Uh, I always work the reed from the bottom up, uh, just like building a house. I, I do it from the cut up towards the tip area. I try to avoid the tip area at all costs. That's the last resort because especially today where there's so little cane going into the tip, uh, I, I want to preserve that. I also try to stay away from the middle of the reed. I work uh, from the bottom of the reed towards the edges, towards the sides, with the knife facing towards the sides. In other words, not straight up and down. And sometimes just working at the bottom of a cut, especially if it's a, uh, a filed reed, there's a little residue of uh, bark you want to remove. Sometimes that alone can make the difference enough uh, so it's it's a matter of constantly taking a little off trying, taking a little off trying. Um, I only use uh, reed uh, trimmers as a last resort if the reed gets too soft. Uh, generally, I find that when you use a reed trimmer, you have to recalibrate the whole balance of the reed. So it's it's like starting again for me. But uh, it's it's quite frankly a lot of trial and error and you have to go by the feel. Uh, the other thing that I think most players that I see working on reeds don't do is they don't have a consistent way for trying the adjustments. In other words, what are your test means for trying the adjustments? They tend to blow into it, the reed too hard. Uh, I, I tend to go the opposite way. Like I'll blow the, the, uh, littlest amount of air without using my tongue and pivoting the reed and mouthpiece on one side of my mouth so that one side of the reed is not touching uh, my lip and teeth in essence. So for instance, if I wanted to try the left side of the reed, I'm going to pivot the mouthpiece and reed on the right side and blow the softest amount of air I can um, without any articulation, just and seeing what it takes to start the read. So my, my thing, my basic thing is I always want to start, be able to start the sound with the uh, littlest amount of air possible to play a pianissimo uh, without any choking or any biting or any type of constraint. If I can begin to start the sound that way and do it even, evenly from both sides, in other words, the left side and the right side of the read respond to that same small amount of air equally well, that gives me a start. And then, of course, I, I want to make sure that I have a reed that's heavy enough in the middle that has enough uh, cane to sustain the upper parts of the horn and playing loudly as well. So, I mean, that's in a very short, abbreviated description of my general approach. Um, and then if the articulation is that it doesn't respond so well, or, you know, there are different adjustments one does... Um, maybe a little bit at the tip. And again, when I work at the tip, it's not with a knife. It'll only be with a reed rush, which is much more subtle uh, than any knife can be. Uh, so, you know, it, again, everyone is different and everyone has a different uh, way they want to hear the sound and the response they're looking for. But I generally want to be able to have uh, any setup that I have on any of my instruments respond to an air attack, if you want to call it that, without tongue, with the softest amount of air, uh, the smallest amount of air being blown. 
I want to be able to hear the sound sort of emanate from the air. So last time on the show, you mentioned, uh, I think you have over 20 instruments. Well, that uh, yeah, I mean, it's... I guess some of them are oh, the yes. same, but... Yeah, I mean, this is typical of any doubler, quite frankly. So, but like, uh, you're having to budget your, your practice time already so uh, diligently, probably. Yeah. How much time additionally are you spending on reads? Are we talking a couple hours a day, or I mean, what's the... Impossible to be uh, that specific. It varies from day to day, and like tonight I've got to play E flat, B flat clarinet as far as the reads. So after I finish with you, uh, that'll be my first. Um, that'll be my first endeavor, and then I'll be able to know how much time I can spend on the reads and how much I can actually spend, you know, uh, warming up properly. Uh, you know, I may not be able to get down to the gym to work out today if if if, if the reads are going to be problematic, and and that's you know every day. I mean, they play. Uh, they could have played well yesterday or the day before, and as we all know, today's another story. Um, so there's, mm. it it's impossible to put a a specific amount, um, but. I would say this, that the people who have the greatest opportunity to spend the greatest amount of time with reads are those who are students. And when you're at school and you're studying, you know, you think, oh, man, I've got all these classes and tests. But believe me, it's the greatest time to really learn about this and to devote time with the reads. Because when you're in the professional situation and you've got to produce day to day and, uh, you know, uh, your time is limited, especially as a multiple wind player. And, you know, the musical demands of what's in front of you, which changes every day, uh, makes that happen. Whereas at school, you'll have musical demands, but generally, you know, you'll play one or two concerts a semester. I mean, as a professional musician, you may be playing three or four concerts every week, different music and, and uh, different requirements. So, it's it's a different ball game when you're a full-time professional. So for the lightning round, um, these are all questions answered in under a minute. Just real quick. Um, if I were to walk over to your music stand right now, what would <laughs> I find? And I have a feeling you're going to say Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. No, oh, I've no. done that enough. I know what I have to do. Right? So that, oh, okay. I'm going to be playing that for three hours tonight. No, I actually have uh, the West Side Story that I alluded to earlier because I have that coming up all this weekend. I have uh, Cavallini Caprices for clarinet on my stand. Um, mm -hmm. I've got The Modern Flutist, which is a book of uh, a lot of etudes and orchestral excerpts for flute on my stand. Uh, got a, a, the Taffanel Goldberg Complete Edition for flute on my stand. Uh, you got a big music stand. Well, yeah, I do, actually. Uh, and also, I have a lot <laughs> of my music here on my couch uh, sitting in front of me. I have a book of, of Cannibal Addict. Cannibal Adderley uh, transcriptions because uh, I love Cannibal and I'm, you know, uh, I, I like to use the transcriptions, especially when I'm trying equipment to, you know, if I'm trying to capture a certain sound and whatnot. Um, the Marquardt Flute Study, uh, which is a daily exercise book that William Kincaid, the great American flutist, used to have all the students do. I'm trying to memorize that book, actually. <laughs> it's a slow process. Uh, but, um, you know, and then I believe it or not, I have the Brahms Quintet on the stand because we're with some colleagues. We're thinking about trying to get together and play a little concert this summer uh, with the Brahms. So you know, it's a it's a mixed bag of stuff, uh, which is what I like. Uh, 
but you know it does present its problems when you certainly like when you're getting into the Brahms quintet you don't want anything else in your palette I mean you don't want any other distractions musically or anything and that's totally consuming in and of itself and so you know when it comes time as we get closer all the other stuff I take off the stand I actually put it in another room so I can't see it you know <laughs> I don't let it distract me I really have to do that sometimes because you know sometimes you're thinking well gee I, you know I heard this thing on the radio, man, I want to play alto tonight. And, you know, you know, you've got to play something else the next day. So that's that. You've got to stop yourself. Yeah, those are the moments when you say, gee, I wonder what it would have been like just to play one instrument your whole life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they have a lot less music on their stand. Because if you got, you know, the method books you think about for clarinet and then times that by flute and saxophone yeah. or whatever else, yeah. I mean, you know, all of a sudden you got... Oh. Probably hundreds oh, of books, eh? Man, it's 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 a sad scene here. I'm telling you, there's <laughs> just a lot of music out here, and uh, I I think I'm pretty organized, but no one would know that coming into the room. <laughs> <laughs> it's your own type of exactly. Work. What's your all-time favorite piece of music or album? You know, that's going to change from day to day. I, I'll say that a few. A, what is it right now? <laughs> right now. Man, I, I, I still come back to Charlie Parker with Strings. Bird with Strings uh, is, is one of my favorite albums of all types of music. But I, I, I guess from just playing the music a lot and having greater and greater respect for Rachmaninoff, uh, Symphonic Dances, which was his last piece, uh, is still in my ear because I've been doing it so much. And I just, you know, one of the more amazing scores. Um, Musically speaking, orchestrationally, and of course, wonderful little sax solo toward the beginning of the piece. But it's just a great piece of music. So you know, those those are what's on my mind at the mo the moment. Along those same lines, if you could go back in time and meet any composer, or even even a living composer or musician, who would it be? <sighs> well, a composer. You know, it'll, it'll, it'll fluctuate between, only because a little more contemporary between Stravinsky and Debussy, uh, both voices I love. I, I would have loved to have been able to just see in person, uh, which I never did, and I'm unhappy about that, see Duke Ellington. But as far as a musician, two musicians stand out. It's, I really wish just to have a chance to talk with them, meet them. It would have been Charlie Parker, Bird. And Yasha Heifetz, uh, because mm -hmm. to me they represent in each of their respective fields the ultimate, uh, the ultimate of what a musician can accomplish. Do you have a particular book you'd like to recommend to the? the well, audience? since it's a clarinet audience, um, there is a book that's not that well known. And I was thinking about this when you told me we might be doing uh, this type of lightning round. Uh, there's a book by an Italian instrument maker named Ernest Ferron, F-E-R-R-O-N, that was translated into English maybe, oh, maybe 10, 15 years ago, and it's called The Clarinet Revealed. Uh, and it is available, you go to Amazon, um, it's a paperback edition, very affordable. It's, it talks about the physics of the instrument in a way that's much... Uh, more together and, and a little easier to understand than most. I still think Arthur Benade's 
great books on the fundamentals of music acoustics is is the Bible. But uh, for those of us who are not physics majors, uh, Ernest Ferrand's book, The Clarinet Revealed, does explain a lot of this stuff that we deal with on the clarinet in a way that we can all understand and maybe get a better understanding of how we're going to deal with our equipment and why things, you know, uh, happen on the clarinet that seem not to make sense, <laughs> acoustically speaking. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes there, and I should check that one out myself. I haven't Yeah, haven't it's not it. well known. Uh, I, I'm thankful for the uh, repairman. Believe it or not, a saxophone repairman, uh, Bill Singer in New York here, turned me on to it. Ernest Ferron also had uh, another book for the saxophone, by the way. It's called The Saxophone Is My Voice. Uh, so both of those books are available and really quite affordable here in America. I think maybe they're around $20 each or so forth. Um but superb books dealing with the physics of the clarinet and, of course, the saxophone. Let's not forget about your book, too, there. I'm going to put that <laughs> a link to that in the show notes. And uh, I, 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 ugh, I would highly recommend that uh, a lot of people in the audience here check that out. It was a great... Uh, I haven't finished reading it, obviously. It's like 500 pages of intense information. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> I'm working my way through too. it. Me, <laughs> too. <laughs> you, you know... The, not to be uh, smug or anything, but I think I've learned more writing the book than I would have had someone else written it because going through the process and now rereading it, it it's, you know, there's just, there's a lot of information we, we need to have as musicians and that can help us. Uh, and it allows us to teach ourselves. And uh, I'm glad I went through this process, although it took me about 15 years. I learned a lot about music that I don't think I ever would have or didn't even know existed. What is an instrument that you'd love to play but never learned? And I know this is maybe an odd question for a doubler because I feel like maybe the, the instruments you wanted to spend the time with you did. Yeah. But, well, uh, it's the first, my first instrument was piano because my mom taught it to me. She played piano. And I play enough, like you might say, musician piano, or, but not, a, not anywhere near where I'd, I'd be comfortable ever saying I can play piano. That's the instrument. I think the key, the piano is the instrument that we all must, we all must play, and we um, must play well. And I don't play that well enough. And it, you know, one of my dreams was to have a, a Steinway Grand, like a, you know, Hamburg Steinway, in my house, to be yeah. able to wake up every morning and play tunes or pl just play Bach chorales or fugues. I think, I think the keyboard is the essential instrument, and. That still gnaws at me that I don't play well enough. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way about piano. It's it's such an enticing, myself included. I've I've uh, started going back a bit here, trying to get my skills up. But now it's hard to find the time, right? It's true, but I mean, even just to be able to have the chops uh, to you know play some of the Beethoven sonatas or Chopin nocturnes or you know just the incredible literature written for that, or or to be able to you know improvise and, and voice like Bill Evans or McCoy Tyner in another direction. I mean, it's, 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 it's score reduction, everything. It, the whole world is available yeah. to you when you have the piano as your instrument. And, um, I, I really hope I can somehow find more time and, and consistent time to practice piano in the future. Yeah, it's true. As wind players were always sort of, uh, confined not not necessarily the best word maybe but we are confined to ensemble playing really i mean it's not uh just as clarinet after a while is you know not gonna 
entice everybody and something like a piano can really fill out well intricacies of the harmony it's true i mean the other thing being said i mean the clarinet the the piano has the greatest music written for it within the western european classical tradition there's no question about that Mm. but within the woodwinds there's also no question the clarinet has the greatest music written for it there's no woodwind instrument that has the chamber music written for it i mean flute and clarinet have equal amount of fantastic orchestral solos but but yes. regarding chamber music there's no close second the clarinet the quality of the chamber music written for clarinet by the greatest composers is spectacular and um very lucky brahms yep. you know that he was able to do and mozart for that instrument mozart yeah of course De- I mean, Debussy, um, no it's, Schumann, it's very i mean just go schubert go down the list and you know it's the works that we have from these great artists um it's really astonishing but again nothing is like the piano yeah so um we discussed this in the last episode but uh where can we find you oh, online okay well I, my website is joffewoodwinds.com j-o-f-f-e woodwinds as one word dot com and i'm also i have a professional facebook page uh with joffy woodwinds uh uh, on Facebook as the go-to. So, you know, I'm not a heavy social media person. Um, I just like to do it, I guess you might say, the old-fashioned way. Um, but that would be the best way. And uh, my email, Ed Joffe, is one word, E-D-J-O-F-F-E, uh, at iCloud.com. So just so listeners are aware, you've got a pretty great website set up there with a lot of great resources, including your own set of interviews with uh, amazing musicians uh, in New York there, I believe, is where you're, where you're doing the yeah. interviews. Who are some guests you've had on there? Do you want to say something oh, sure. about that? Oh, well, sure. Thanks. Um, I, I set up these set of video uh, interviews about two years ago uh, just as an educational uh, means, really. It was something I wanted to do, and uh, a colleague of mine who's a great trombone player in New York, Mike Davis, has been doing this uh, for the brass world for oh maybe a decade, and we worked a show together, and that's uh, you know that's the other thing. Working shows, you meet a lot of musicians uh, that maybe you wouldn't have a chance to, or that you know on a peripheral level, but now you get when you're working every day in the same environment, you really get a chance to know them. And I've met some of the greatest musicians in the world and learned so much from them doing shows uh, and Mike is certainly one of them and uh, so as a result of seeing what he did on his website I got inspired and um, started doing these interviews the first one I did was with a studio musician Woodwind Doubler who's probably the most successful one of my generation in New York Lawrence Feldman uh, I followed that with one with one of my favorite jazz musicians, alto saxophonist Charles McPherson, and subsequently did those also with another alto saxophonist, Jerry Dodgen, uh, clarinetist Larry Guy, who's also a tremendous music educator. Uh, uh, I did some with uh, some oboe doublers in New York, Rick Heckman and Dan Willis. Uh, recently completed one with some bassoon doublers, baritone bassoon doublers, uh, Ron Ginelli, Roger Rosenberg, and Alan Wan. Uh, let's see, I have one coming up with, uh, believe it or not, four great woodwind repairmen. Uh, that'll be out in June. I had uh, collected, uh, you know, some of the my favorite woodwind repair people in New York, and that included uh, Bill Singer, Tony Salambini, the great clarinet repairman Mark Jacoby, 
and Tomoji Hirakata. Uh, hmm. Oh, I also did a video with uh, Broadway conductors, uh, three Broadway conductors and music directors to, you know, have them talk about, you know, their considerations when they hire musicians and what they're looking for in musicians and the status of Broadway theater. Uh, and I think the final one that I didn't mention was a very, very famous flute teacher and player, Keith Underwood, who did a tremendous mm. uh, video with me and uh, talked about some great uh, teaching tools and, and techniques, not only for flute, but really that can be applicable to uh, clarinet and saxophone, especially with regard to breathing. So, Well, yeah, you got a ton of great stuff yeah. up there. And I must say that the video element really adds to it, but it must be a whole level whole new level of work as far as putting and, all that together. Uh, well, so thanks thanks yeah, well, for doing that. Well, as you that. know, putting any, any of these type of interviews together takes a lot of time. But yeah, it's <laughs> it's a lot of time and money. But, you know, I um, I do enjoy it. And I have to say, I've learned something from every single interview. And I've known all of these people for many years, in some cases for 40 years. And I've learned stuff there at these interviews that never came up during all the time that I knew them. And uh, so I've I, I consider them lessons for myself, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of look at it the same way a little bit. And it's funny because I realized, uh, looking back, how much more I even know about people people that I've never met in person, but that I don't know the same things about my own personal teachers. So I'm trying to get some of the people that, you know. Right, uh, right. No. You know, because you, you don't sit around and talk about that stuff in a lesson, right? Really? So. Uh, in most cases, no. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it adds to the, uh, I, I hope it adds to the overall, uh, conversation in woodwind world. Uh, and, but it's fun. It, it's fun doing it. And it's fun hearing back from people, uh, who like it. And some people who, you know, I haven't heard from for many years and all of a sudden they saw it and, you know, said some nice things and we'd be in a conversation that way. Yeah, no, I think it's you great. Know. So. We've had a long conversation. This spans three episodes, and uh, I want to thank anyone who's taken the time to listen to all these. I think we had some real, real value here, though. We covered three totally different topics. Yeah. Um, if you haven't checked out the previous episodes, make sure you head back and uh, listen to episode one and two here, or part one and two, sorry. Um, that featured conversation about Ed's book and uh, his CD and his career as a multi-instrumentalist with doubling. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add to this sort of marathon? We <laughs> yeah, we did. Uh, <laughs> thanks for doing that. I, I hope it's not a waste of time for those listening. But um, absolutely but, not. But absolutely not. Uh, maybe just one word uh, that uh, something that does concern me uh, a lot today um, with regard to woodwind playing, and that is to investigate and to give time, serious time, investigating uh, the playing, the recordings of the great players from other generations. Uh, and since we're a clarinet site, uh, particularly here, you know, for me, I find it disarming in speaking to younger players who know nothing of the playing, don't even know the names, but certainly don't know the recordings of, you know, some of the great players uh, like Louis Cahuzac, Daniel Bonad, uh, Ralph McLean, Harold Wright, Robert Marcellus, Carl Leister, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, early 20th century, mid 20th century uh, into, you know, towards the end of, of the 20th century. That, I mean, these were magnificent musicians and they're just, you know, those are just a half a dozen that I rattled off. But I think it's important to understand and listen to and have a knowledge of what they sounded like 
what music they made, how they made it. Uh, by the way, I left that Stanley Drucker. Oh, man, I better not do that. I won't hear the end of that. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, these are people who were substantial players, major influences. And uh, it seems to me a lot of people today just are concerned with those who have the gigs at the moment and don't really care about the history. This is not just the clarinet world, by the way. It is absolutely the flute world and the saxophone world as well. Um, and it's, I, I think we're missing something really essential and important. So, you know, I would always recommend, you know, especially with YouTube today, researching the great clarinet voices of other uh, eras and seeing what they had to offer because you might find something that might just, touch you in a way that you know you might not be hearing today and um, and then the other thing for the students when you get out of school and you have your degree and you have it mounted on the wall just remember that that degree means absolutely nothing when it comes to being a professional musician the constant study and attention to being a professional and learning and evolving uh, is is only a you get a tid, a tad bit of that at school, just the littlest notion. When you get out of school is when we find out if you really deserve to even be considered uh, as someone who wants to be a professional musician. It's really a lot to it, and it's not just playing the notes. Uh, well, I like what you said there about the, the, the looking up to kind of past um, stars in the the, the instrumental mm -hmm. history sort of thing, because I, I I actually one time or sometimes I go to a school and I'll ask you know, what inspired you to play clarinet. And I think that with pit, with kids who pick guitar, they often know like, oh, I love Jimi Hendrix right. or oh, I like uh, Imagine Dragons or whatever band mm -hmm. they're into. But with clarinet, the answer is often rather, I don't know if it's unsettling, but it's a little disappointing. They'll say like, well, my brother played it yeah. or yeah. Squidward plays it mm -hmm. on. SpongeBob SquarePants, and they, they never say, only very rarely actually does someone say, man, I listened to a recording, or I saw an orchestra, and I was like, that's right, my sound, right. you know? They don't think about it right. that way, and, and I think that, although that is okay, at some point you kind of have to go, well, what is my inspiration for right. this? It doesn't come out of right. thin air, or maybe it does. And in some cases, know. look, it may come out from Audie Shore, or Benny Goodman, or Buddy DeFranco, or Jimmy Hamilton, or more recent times, Eddie Daniels. I mean, it doesn't have to be just a classical approach, let's say, with regard to clarinet, but there's there's a lot to be learned and a lot to be enjoyed by investigating that which came before. And, you know, I, I'd just like to end with a statement that I heard Charles Mingus, the great jazz bass player, make. I'm not sure if I said this on a prior episode. I, I may have, but if, if I'm repeating myself, so be it. Um, <laughs> that Mingus said he what he wanted to hear in the sound of a bass player he wanted to hear the history of the bass in that sound. And, oh, and interesting. I kind of feel more and more, as I get older, more and more like that. I want to hear something that reflects some of the history of the instrument as well as, you know, whatever the individual brings to it. And it doesn't have that history in it. Somehow, for me, I, I turn off to it. I, I mean, that's just me. Uh, but I think there is something to be gained by looking back... Um, and, 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 you know, the interesting thing, all of the greatest players from different eras, if you listen to them and read about what they said, they were listening to others, too. You didn't become a great player just falling out of the sky. It, it, there's always, 
there's always a basis uh, for uh, someone's individuality. Uh, no one is a totally unique artist unto themselves. I'm standing on the shoulder of giants. Well, the, if we're, you know? that's, I think we have to search for that. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today, Ed, and, and for the other episodes as well, and sharing all your massive knowledge with uh, the audience. It's really appreciated. Well, thanks for having me, Sean. I, I, you know, I tend to talk too much, but I love this stuff so much. And, uh, you know, I just want to see, I don't want to see things forgotten. I want to see things get better. I, you know, it's, I don't want to see it, what, what's happening in the music world mirror what's happening in our political world. I want to see things get better and make musical intelligence uh, more of a mainstream thing. And, and thanks for doing these podcasts, man. It's just great. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is redefining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with technology built from the ground up. By using the world's most innovative techniques to deliver consistently what was once made variable by hand, D'Addario ensures excellence right out of the box is standard, not a surprise. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds.